there. I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about a career in the legal field, specifically in helping survivors of sexual assault, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a coordinating attorney with the Veterans Initiative at the New York Legal Assistance Group's Legal Health Division. But before I introduce you to Samantha Kubik, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings, and it's got unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And please make sure to check out my new live streaming show every week on LinkedIn, where I'll be sharing coronavirus-relevant career advice, interviewing guests live, taking your questions, and of course, featuring your live comments. And all of this is to help empower college students and young professionals to turn your degrees into careers you'll love. Just click on the link in show notes to follow me on LinkedIn, and that's so you'll know when the show is live and you can tune in. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Samantha Kubik, a coordinating attorney with the Veterans Initiative housed within the New York Legal Assistance Group's Legal Health Division. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the New York Legal Assistance Group, for the last 30 years, their dedicated staff has worked tirelessly to amplify the voices of individuals and of communities experiencing poverty and to provide them with the highest quality free legal services for those who need an attorney. Samantha's focus is specifically on helping female veterans access Veterans Health Care and Benefits. In an article that she wrote back in 2017, Samantha cited data that estimated there had been over 70,000 sexual assaults just in 2016. And that included 8,600 women and 6,300 men. Many of these survivors had been assaulted repeatedly. Samantha has written and spoken widely about military sexual trauma, which is known as MST. Samantha, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, and I'm so excited to be here. Well, I am so excited to talk to you. So I got to ask you, what kind of coffee do you brew in your home? Can I say coffee since you're in New Jersey? You're not far (laughs) from New York. (laughs) Well, right now I am fully embracing this fall season. And so I I have some pumpkin Nespresso with a little bit of pumpkin spice sprinkled on the top. Oh my gosh, you definitely are. Well, we're doing this interview like almost the third, I guess it is kind of the third week of October. So you are totally like rocking it with the almost Thanksgiving vibe here. Absolutely. I feel like with coronavirus, we need to embrace each season, even if it's from within our homes, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
Definitely. And holy cow, as you and I were chatting just a moment ago, like with this incredibly emotionally draining job, no doubt that you have self-care and finding those ways to kind of keep your energy up are super important. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And for me, coffee is that (laughs) self-care. Oh, my goodness. Me too, girl. I love my coffee. And we should also let our listeners know that if they want to learn more about how to break into the legal field broadly, even though you are working with survivors of sexual trauma, they should check out show notes to see if your Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. And before we get into learning more about what you do, Samantha, I want to give our listeners a warning that we may well get into what some might consider to be graphic or disturbing subject matters. And if that is definitely not for you, now is the time to click to another T4C episode. So with that, I was thinking, Samantha, before we get into what you do, As a coordinating attorney with the Veterans Initiative, maybe we could start with why you do what you do, because it certainly is no fluke that you got into this line of work. Absolutely. Yeah, I have sort of known I wanted to do this work for most of my life, and When I say this work, I knew I wanted to work with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault because I am a survivor myself. And I have seen the ways in which survivors struggle to find their voice, to find someone who will listen to them, to find someone who will believe them and support them. And how not finding someone like that can be the difference between going back to an abuser and not, between sort of coming out of the experience and finding a way to thrive or not. And I understand how important that person is. And I wanted to find a job where I could be that person, where I could help people and center the fact in my help that I hear them and I believe them and I support them. Mm. So how old were you when you said, this is what I want to do? This is the career that I want to get into. It sounds like you were quite young. I think that it sort of took shape over time. The seeds were there from very young age. I knew early on that I wanted to work with this population, but in what facet and how I would do that took shape over time and was informed by my internships and experiences and school. And so that part was sort of a work in progress. But I... Gosh, I'm not even sure. I was such a young age that I knew I wanted to work with this population that I don't even know if I understood that it was a crystallized thought in my head, if that makes sense. And I did a lot of work throughout high school working with survivors of trauma. At that point, it was 
working with Holocaust survivors. And then when I got to college, I started doing more work around working with women who were survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. And I honestly never thought I would be a lawyer. I come from a family of lawyers. Everyone's a lawyer. And I thought, that's not for me. And it wasn't simply because I was saying, I don't want to do what they all do. But everyone in my family who is a lawyer is more of a lawyer like you often see on television, working at the big law firm, doing corporate law. And all of that seemed unbelievably dull to me and not like what I wanted to do. And I thought instead, I'd probably pursue policy advocacy work. I didn't know that lawyers did this type of work. I didn't know about that part of the legal profession. And I was very fortunate in that one of my internships in college was with a woman who, while no longer acting as a lawyer in her day-to-day life, was in fact a lawyer and had a legal degree. And she noticed where my interests lay and what I was focused on and the parts of the work I enjoyed versus the parts I found frustrating. And she said to me, have you thought about going to law school? Because there are lawyers doing this type of work. And that was the first time I really thought about turning to the law to do this work. And then even within law school, how I was going to work with this population and how I was going to try to do this type of work changed frequently and often to lead me eventually to where I am now. And was that because, I know because I have your CV in front of me, you did all kinds of summer work. You were a legal intern at the New York Legal Assistance Group, which is where you are now. At that point, you worked in the matrimonial and family law unit. You actually also engaged in advanced reproductive justice clinic. You worked at Her Justice, which is I guess you worked as a New York Women's Bar Association fellow and legal intern, and you also worked as a research assistant. Was it through those different internships that you kind of figured out the right niche for yourself? Yeah, definitely. I went into law school, again, very clear picture of the population I wanted to be helping, but also apprehensive and perhaps I would even say scared of actually working with survivors up close and personal every day. I sort of had this thought that I would be too close to the issue. I would be too emotional. I feel like as women, we're always concerned that people think we're too emotional. And I I thought that maybe I would meet a survivor and we would be working and their story would maybe trigger me in a way where I would follow apart and that would not be helpful to them or to me and it would just be a mess. And so I went in thinking I was going to do what's called impact litigation, which is the work of organizations like the ACLU, where you are taking cases that are representative of broader problems in the system and using individual cases to challenge laws and systems that you feel that you know are impacting your clients in a harmful way. And I thought that that was what I was going to do. My dream job when I applied to law school, I think I even mentioned it in my essay for law school, was that I wanted to work at the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. 
So I went to law school and my first summer got an internship at the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. It was a dream come true. I was so excited. And when I got there, what I realized is, first of all, that type of work is a lot of research and strategizing, trying to find the best case possible to challenge a law because you may only have one shot in a generation to challenge that law. And so you are working to make sure that you are presenting the best version possible. And it's not a lot of interaction with the individuals on the ground, with the people who you are helping. You're you're helping from sort of a further back perspective. And so I thought that work is so important. And I thought to myself, maybe I want to do that at some point. But I think I need to have a better understanding of what's going on before I could possibly be part of the process to figure out how do we solve the problem. I needed to know what is the problem. Mm. And I had sort of a moment of crisis thinking to myself, okay, you went to law school, you can't do client interaction work, but you also don't want to do this sort of higher level impact litigation. Have you made a complete and total mistake going to law school? Like, what is the option now? And thankfully, I had a wonderful professor I had had in my first year of law school, and we stayed close afterwards. And I went to him after that first summer and and had a mini meltdown and said to him, you know, what do I do? I've exhausted all these options. And he looked at me and said, no, you haven't you've decided one of the options isn't an option for you before you even tried it. And he says, look, interns are free labor. Why don't you try out doing client interaction, doing what's called direct services work, where you are day-to-day interacting with clients, taking their cases, representing them on issues. And if you can't do it, if it is too triggering, if it is too difficult, you're an intern. They will find something for you to do for the remainder of the semester or the summer or whatever it is. It's going to be fine. Your free work, test it out. Don't decide you can't do it before you try. And that made a lot of sense to me. And so I had an internship at Her Justice, as you mentioned, working with domestic violence survivors. And the first survivor that I ever spoke with really resonated with me, really reminded me of my own experiences and experiences of that of my mother. And instead of it causing me to fall apart, I realized that those experiences were my strength. I could understand on a deeper level why my client had made some of the choices she did and what may have been going through her mind and what she might be feeling as she sat and talked to me. And while no two survivors are the same and no experiences are the same. So I don't know what my clients have gone through. And I will never have experienced the same thing. I could connect with them in a different way because of my experiences. And not only that, I realized I absolutely loved it. I loved getting to know the people who I was helping and having that connection with them. And that completely switched gears for me. I said, okay, this is the way I want to do the work. I want to do direct services work and have those experiences with my clients. 
Oh my gosh. As I listened to you talking, Samantha, I got goosebumps. (laughs) What do you think the takeaway is for our young listeners? Because this is one of the biggest pain points for, for young people and for those who are farther along in their career with regards to finding something that really lights them up. And it can be a super painful topic, but something that drives them, something they feel passionate about. Because we we may feel passionately or think we feel passionately about something, but that doesn't necessarily help us narrow it down to the exact job, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think that trying things out and being a willingness to try out something that you hate. My mom always said that nothing is permanent when it comes to your job. Nothing is forever unless you want it to be. And so it's sort of drilled into our head, and I'm not even sure where it's coming from, this notion that you are choosing your career, capital C, definitely no plural, and you have to know what it is you want to do at the age of, I don't know, 18, 22, 25, whatever it may be. And it's simply not true. And so try things out and be willing to possibly fail at them or hate them. It's okay if you hate them, then you'll just try something else. And maybe if you think of it like a little maze, maybe you'll have gone down the wrong path and maybe it's a dead end. Maybe you do have to completely turn around and restart, but that's okay. You've got plenty of time to do that. And maybe it's not a dead end. Maybe it's simply just a weird pathway to something amazing. And each of my internships and experiences taught me something I liked and something I didn't. And I used those to find a place that for now is my home in terms of my job. I took little pieces from each different place. You know, I decided not to do impact litigation, but I loved that at the ACLU, there were people working on so many different types of legal issues, racism, reproductive justice, women's rights, cybersecurity, all of these things were being talked about. And I loved that dynamic. And so when I went on to her justice, I loved the direct services component of the work. But everyone at the organization was working on domestic violence work. And while that was incredibly inspiring, I missed the conversations buzzing around about the other things that impact our clients' lives. And so when I came to the New York Legal Assistance Group, it was sort of a marriage of everything I wanted. It was direct services work in an organization that touched upon a million different issues and really tried to see the struggle of poverty as a holistic problem. How do we go about solving this? We're not solving this, we're not solving poverty, but how do we go about helping our clients and really helping them in a wraparound way? Maybe it might be that the client has to have multiple different attorneys helping with different issues, but we are able to, within one office, address so many of the problems that are going on in our clients' lives. We don't have to just say, oh, I'll send you to this other office. And I loved that. And so each internship and each experience gave me a little something I loved and a little something I didn't. And I just kept 
hunting until I found the right place. And again, it's not forever. You have to find somewhere that you love and makes you happy and challenges you. And then it might do that forever, but it might do that for a few years. And then you look for something else and it's all okay. It's not a linear path and it's not a capital C, no plural. It's your career and maybe career is up. Mm. Oh my gosh. Well, you gave me chills again, Samantha, for the second time. (laughs) And we, I should say, are singing from the same songbook because the discovery process of finding where you want to start, especially talking to those who are on the cusp of graduating from college, is like the nursery rhyme. Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It's just trying different bowls of porridge. And even better, if you can start earlier in your college career with those internships and sampling different bowls of porridge. But honestly, it is a lifelong pursuit. So don't worry. Do not worry. There, There is no such thing as permanence. <laughs> as your mom said, right? The only thing that's permanent is if you have a kid. Then this is a decision you can't change. But with your career and different jobs you have in the career, absolutely. And you went another step further, Samantha, because even though you did land on the New York Legal Assistance Group and working within their legal health division, you actually came about forging your own path within that space to found the first legal clinics in the entire United States dedicated to supporting and serving women veterans. How did that happen? Again, that was sort of different pieces of jobs and experiences I had had coming together. When I was in law school and I was thinking about what I was going to do post-law school, a common option for people who are interested in public interest law is getting a fellowship after law school. And one of the bigger fellowship programs, the way they work is you basically design a dream job for yourself. You think of a problem that either isn't being addressed, or maybe a new way of addressing it, or maybe it's a problem that's being addressed for some people, but not everyone. And you try to find something unique, and then you find a place that would make sense to go about doing that work. And you sort of present it as this neat package to the fellowship organization. And so I was trying to decide, what would I want to do if I had such a fellowship. And at the time, as I was having this internal discussion or monologue, I was interning at the time at NILAG. And I was thinking about the different work I'd done. I was thinking about domestic violence work, sexual assault work. And I thought back to when I was at the ACLU that first summer of law school. And I had sort of become like the domestic violence intern that summer. Of the interns, I was most interested in that topic. And I was constantly hungry for new assignments. And at one point, my supervisor said to me, you know, we don't have another domestic violence case for you to be researching right now. But we do have a case on military sexual trauma. 
And I probably stared very blankly at her because I had no idea what that was. And she said, it's an issue about rape and sexual assault in the military. Is this something that would interest you? And I said, sure. And so I took the assignment and I started looking into it, which is when I first encountered this concept of military sexual trauma, which is broader than just sexual assault or rape. It includes pervasive harassment experienced by our service members while in the military. And I had no idea the prevalence of the issue and how long this has been an epidemic in our military. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm someone who prides themselves on being an advocate for survivors and an activist on these issues. I care about these things and I knew nothing about this. And so what did that mean in terms of what other people who maybe weren't pursuing these issues in the way that I was knew about it? I imagine that people probably didn't know very much about this at all. And it sort of stuck in my head when I did that assignment. And so when I was thinking about this fellowship, I was very fortunate and spoke with someone who was currently a fellow at the New York Legal Assistance Group. And he was working with veterans within the legal health division. And what our division does is we work within what's called a medical legal partnership which means that we provide legal services on site at hospitals and community care sites across New York City on a wide array of civil legal issues. And so we are providing free legal services to the patients of the hospital with the idea being that when you have things impacting your life, they impact your health and vice versa. When your health is causing you problems, it may have ripple effects throughout your life, perhaps with your ability to work, perhaps with your ability to afford your bills, all of those things. And so it's this unique way of going about looking at these problems. And so this person I was speaking with was working with veterans in VA hospitals in New York. And I spoke with him about being a fellow and how he came up with his fellowship. And he said, have you thought about any ideas? And I threw out a bunch of ideas I'd been thinking about, one of which was to work with women veterans who were survivors of MST. And the minute I said it, his eyes almost bugged out of his head. And he said, yes, yes, we need that. And he spoke with me about the fact that there wasn't anyone focusing on this population, that they had unique experiences and unique sort of consequences of those experiences. And that while he was very capable of doing much of the work he was doing, he was not someone who had had all the experience I had with regards to working with trauma survivors, providing trauma-informed care and trauma-informed lawyering. And that was really missing from what they were doing. And so together, we formed this idea for this project, which would be to open, as you said, the country's first legal clinic to exclusively serve women veterans, to provide them with a safe space where they could receive legal services for free to assist with a wide array of issues, but including issues relating to 
sexual assault and sexual harassment. And I was incredibly fortunate and was chosen as an equal justice work fellow and was able to do this work at the New York Legal Assistance Group, which is work that I still continue today. Incredible. Really incredible. Could you give us a window, Samantha, into who your clients are? I know they range in age from the young to the very old and how you're helping them. Yeah, my clients are very diverse. They come from very different backgrounds. They have served in many different eras. I My clients typically age, the age range is about 21 to, I had a client as old as 97. And they served in all times in our military. They served in peacetime and wartime. They served in combat zones and back here in the United States. They grew up in different situations. Some came from military families where people have served for generations. Some came from really difficult and traumatic backgrounds and were looking for a way out. Some came from places where they didn't have a lot of opportunities and were looking for a way to gain experiences and better themselves and travel and all of those things we we think of when we think of being in the military. And, you know, I, I have some clients who got all they wanted to out of the military. The military was a wonderful experience for them. But unfortunately, I have many clients for whom that was not true. And they did have experiences or a single experience of sexual harassment or assault. And my practice is what's considered a generalist practice, which means we sort of provide a broad array of civil legal services. I work with my clients on obtaining veterans benefits, on obtaining discharge upgrades, which is when you are trying to help someone change their service record to reflect that it should have been seen as honorable rather than less than honorable. I assist with social security cases, family law matters, housing problems. We prepare advanced directives like wills and powers of attorney. And so it's a very broad practice. But the largest number of my cases are cases of women trying to obtain veterans benefits. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a benefit for veterans whereby if you were injured during your military service and you continue to suffer from that injury today, you can obtain compensation for the level of your suffering today. So if you were injured in the military, but you're fine now, this does not apply to you. But if you were injured in some way in the service and it is still something causing you a problem today, you can apply for this benefit. And that includes people who experienced MST, military sexual trauma. If you were assaulted or experienced pervasive harassment or if you were raped and you still suffer from that, whether it be physically or mentally, you can obtain this compensation. And it is a very long and arduous process. It is not very trauma-informed. 
and is therefore often very re-triggering for people and difficult to navigate. And so many of my clients have either never tried to do this before because the notion was too daunting and the concept of reliving their experiences too much, or some of them have been fighting these cases for years and sometimes decades and have been unable to get the benefits to which they are entitled. Wow. So many questions. Just, (laughs) I'm curious here. And now there are three of these clinics in the New York area. Is that right? Uh, There are two that I run. I have one at the Bronx VA and one at the Manhattan VA, although everything is remote right now due to COVID, but they have begun to be replicated around the country. And so there is a similar clinic out in California. There's a woman who is starting a new one in the Washington, D.C. area. There, I believe, is someone doing a similar clinic in Georgia now, if I'm not mistaken. So the model has proven to be effective such that it is now growing. Okay, amazing. You anticipated where I was going with my question. And what about the men who've been assaulted, those survivors of MST, who I alluded to in that article that you wrote in 2017, in that article, you noted that the assaults that were carried out the prior year included 8,600 women and 6,300 men in the U.S. Armed Forces, and that between them, there had been 70,000 instances of sexual assault in 2016. Are there any services to help men? So, yes but it tends to be a little different. So you're completely correct. This is not just a women's issue. While women are disproportionately represented among survivors because fewer women serve in our military, because so many men serve, these statistics often sound misleading. So sometimes they will say that one in a hundred men have experienced MST. Well, one in a hundred men is a lot of men in our military. And so while women's percentages are much higher, the actual numbers of humans are roughly the same. The number of men has been increasing, whether that be that more men are coming forward about their experiences or more men are experiencing it, we are not sure. But the numbers of men reporting this have gone up. And first of all, so while my original fellowship was specifically to create these clinics for women veterans. Since then, I have broadened my practice. I still have my women's clinics, but I also provide services to male veterans, regardless of whether or not they are survivors. But many of my male clients are survivors. So when I meet with them, they receive the same services as the women veterans, but they receive those services within legal clinics that is for men rather than for women. There are many organizations and offices that seek to help veterans obtain these benefits that I'm speaking of. And so there are many offices that do assist both men and women on these claims. My work led me to 
become sort of an expert in the military sexual trauma context. And working with men now, I have realized even more pieces of this. I have seen the way in which men and women respond differently or the same to their experiences and have been able to use a lot of what I learned with the women, but also have had to learn new things and new skills when working with my male clients. And so, yes, that was a very long answer to your question that, yes, there are services for both men and women. With women, we had really seen that they needed a place of their own. That was really the struggle. With male veterans, they are the dominant veteran group. They are often... Many services that are for all veterans often end up being mostly for male veterans simply because of the numbers and because of the history of our military and the fact that more men have traditionally served. Got it. Okay. Well, thank you for laying that out for us. So, Samantha, could you give us sort of an overview of what you do in your current role as a coordinating attorney. And and what does that title mean, coordinating attorney? Yeah. So as coordinating attorney, I am part of a team. It's currently three of us who within the legal health unit, so within that broader medical legal partnership team, we are the ones who work with veterans. And so we are at three VA hospitals. I myself met two of them, as I said, but we also have a clinic out in Long Island. And my job as the coordinating attorney is to coordinate those relationships with the hospital to make sure the project is achieving its goals, achieving its deliverables for grants that we have, making sure that the relationships between the hospital and the attorneys is functioning smoothly and cohesively. We have a lot of healthcare providers that we are interacting with as part of our job. We have small issues that come up in terms of office space and times on site. When the coronavirus hit, we are typically on site at the medical facility. So when clients come to meet with us, they are literally meeting with us within their healthcare facility. But when coronavirus hit, we, of course, both for safety reasons, but also the hospitals, unfortunately, needed all of the space they could get. And so we were immediately off-site and coordinating that with the hospitals, making sure that clients still knew how to reach us and how to get in touch with us if they needed assistance even though we weren't physically on site, making sure the schedule functioned correctly, working on grants, making sure we have the funds to do the work that we do. All of those things are sort of pieces of the coordinating part of my title. And then the attorney part is that I do still continue to run my legal clinic, representing my clients that come in through my particular clinics at the two hospitals. And you have like more than 70 clients at any given time. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Typically, our caseload is about 80 to 100 cases. So that is not always 80 to 100 clients. 
because oftentimes people come in with more than one issue. Sometimes they don't know they're coming in with more than one issue. They'll raise something that leads you to ask them about something else and you realize there's multiple problems going on. But yes, our typical caseload in my team is about 80 to 100 cases at any given time. Now, those cases are in sort of all states of being, right? You have cases where everything's been done that needs to be done and you are waiting on an answer from maybe the VA, maybe immigration, wherever you're trying to get information from. Perhaps we have requested records from the military for someone and we're waiting on those records. There are cases where you are really working on them every single day in terms of you've gotten everything you need and now you're working to put together the briefs and everything else you're going to be submitting. So everything's in different stages. And our clients receive different levels of service depending both on their needs, but also on our resources at any given time. So some clients are receiving advice and counsel, meaning we are speaking with them, letting them know about their rights and what they can do and their options in a scenario, but we may not be representing them in court. Some clients we are representing in court. It depends. Every case you have to analyze on its own. Yeah, I have no doubt. As we heard you explain at the beginning of our discussion, Samantha, one of the things that initially held you back from direct client services was your deep and understandable concern about potentially getting re-triggered. I'm curious, has it ever happened to you? And how have you managed to keep, if it's at all possible, from getting re-triggered through the huge caseload that you're juggling? Yeah, it's definitely happened. I remember the first time it happened because it sort of knocked me on my feet or off my feet, I should say. I had a client and I don't, I don't quite know what it was about her, but I felt a very deep connection with her. And, you know, while we are dealing with the topic of their experiences in the military, we are not always constantly talking about them, right? You know, we, I try to get the conversation out sort of in one go if I can, because I know that telling their story again is often very difficult. And so she came to my office and we met for, oh God, I want to say at least three hours in which she just talked about her experience and told me what had happened to her. And it was partially the power of her own words. She was a very evocative speaker and you really felt as if you could imagine being there. And it just took me right back to my own experiences. And I remember when I walked out of the office after the meeting, one of my colleagues was standing in a room across the hallway and happened to look up as I opened the door. And I don't know what my face looked like, but it must have looked like something had happened because they came over to me and said, are you okay? And I said, I don't think so. I don't think so. And for me, I decided the best thing to do was to finish my notes from the meeting as much as I could right away because I wanted Phil to put this down and walk away for a little bit. And so I quickly went back and finished writing down all of my thoughts 
that I had about what she had told me about. And then I went for a walk. I left the office. I went for a walk around the block. I am sure I stopped to get myself a cup of coffee because I said that's my self-care. And I just kept thinking about it. I kept thinking about what she had said, kept thinking about my own experiences. And it was very difficult. And I think that in retrospect, I probably would have suggested to myself maybe take the rest of the day off. But at the time, I was pretty new in the work and I felt, no, I got to keep going. I got to keep going, which I, I would say to everybody, breaks are important. Vacation is huge. All of those things. So, so now looking back, I would tell myself, you should have taken the rest of the afternoon off. But I think that self-care and protecting yourself and listening to yourself is a growing process, right? I don't have all the answers as to the best way to continue to do this work, but I have found that there are there are definitely things that I have learned. I don't think you can stop yourself from being triggered by your clients. First of all, you have no idea when it may happen. It may be a client whose story is actually quite different than you, but something about it may remind you of yourself or may take you back in the same way that one can't necessarily stop themselves from being triggered in daily life, right? Something could happen, you could see something, you could smell something, you could hear something, and it can bring you back. And so I don't think that there is such a thing as not letting it happen. I think it's what you do once it does happen that's important. And I have found that walking away for a little bit is important, taking those breaks. But I've also found that things that I do on a daily basis have been helpful to keeping myself sane in this type of work. Having strong boundaries of my work life and my home life has been really helpful. So, for example, my office has certain hours. Those are the hours that I am available to my clients. I may do work outside of those hours, but I... I'm not available by phone or email to my clients outside of those hours because otherwise I would likely never stop answering them. And so needing to set those limits, which I also think is helpful to them because there are other supports available to my clients that are not me. They have therapists, they have family, they have social workers, they have, if they needed crisis hotlines available to them, things like that. And so explaining to them from the outset that there are places they can go if they need assistance outside of my office hours has been tremendously helpful. Having supportive colleagues, I, I think that where you work is so important to how you feel about your job. And for me, having colleagues who know about my own experiences, having colleagues who can check in and, and do what that person did in that experience I had where they immediately could tell from my face something that happened. Sometimes it's silly things like, you know, watching videos of cute puppies on YouTube, but little things that keep you smiling and keep you going and provide some sort of break from the heaviness of the work are all really important. And it's going to be different from person to person, but finding those things that you have 
And it can be even harder, I feel, now in coronavirus times where we are literally working out of our homes. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Samantha. And I have no doubt that getting a really good night's sleep every day, if you can, is also a real value. Yes. I cannot speak from experience on that. <laughs> oh, no. I, not good at following that advice. But yes, on nights when I do get a genetic sleep, I'm certainly in a better place to hit the day and to feel like I am rested and ready to go. Oy. Okay. Well, I was like you when I was your age. So it took me a little longer for that <laughs> to kind of sink in. All right. We're going to try to power through these final questions fairly quickly. And that is first to flashback to when you were in college. You graduated from Georgetown University in 2013 and you got a BA in government with a minor in English. Did you know what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated? When I graduated, I did in the sense that I knew I was going to law school. And at that point, I knew I was going to law school to work with survivors. I studied for my LSAT while I was in law, in college rather. And so I was admitted to law school during my senior year of college. So when I graduated, I did know what was up next. I knew I was going to NYU and I knew that my focus was going to be on working with survivors. I could not have told you that I would end up doing what I ultimately did. Right, for sure. Samantha, could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you had a challenging boss or challenging colleagues, and this can obviously include internships and other experiences that you had while you were in law school and college. Maybe you screwed a project up, but most important, how did you persevere? And was there a lesson that you may have learned in the process? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like what most immediately comes to mind is a case that I had about a year ago now, maybe, I want to say it was a case that I actually took over from another colleague who had left our office. And so when that happens, their cases are distributed. And I got one of their cases. And it was a veterans compensation case, as I have explained what those are. And they had notes in the case about what the deadlines were. And they had informed me of when the client's deadline was to get this case filed. And it was an interesting type of deadline in that it wasn't such that if you filed it late, you couldn't file it. But if you filed it late, the client would get less retroactive compensation. So it was more a question of how much the client would receive at the end of this rather than would they receive anything at all. And so I had been told the deadline of this case and I had put it in my calendar in the way that I always do. And I worked very hard on this case. The client was a bit difficult to get in touch with, uh, worked odd hours, and it was sometimes hard to get what I needed from them to the point where I was very concerned we were not going to get things in on time. But we ultimately did. I got what I needed and I submitted their case on time. And then... 
several months later, as these cases take time to get decisions back, we got the decision back. And it turned out that I had been told the wrong deadline. And we had missed the deadline to preserve that retroactive pay. And so we had won the case, but the client was missing out on money. And with my client, I mean, with everybody missing out on money isn't fun, but particularly when you are experiencing poverty. And I was just gutted. I felt so disappointed in myself and frustrated and angry. I couldn't believe that I had allowed this to happen. It felt like the win almost didn't matter because I had screwed this up in this way. I knew I would have to tell the client what had happened. And I was very nervous. I hadn't screwed up in this way on a case. And I was very scared. And I went to my boss and explained to her what happened. And thankfully, she is incredibly supportive of her team. And I explained how it happened and what happened. And she said, obviously, it's not good this happened. Obviously, it's unfortunate. But this happens, right? We make mistakes. And particularly when there's turnover of staff, these things happen and they fall through the cracks. And we wish they didn't, but we're not perfect. So she helped me have the conversation with my client to explain what happened. Thankfully, the client was absolutely wonderful about the situation. They understood. They were rightfully disappointed about what happened, but they were mostly focused on the fact that they were finally going to be getting this money ongoing. And not only that, but they were very focused. This was a survivor and they were very focused on the fact that Someone had heard their story, not just me, but a government agency had heard their story and believed them. And I learned a bunch of things from it. I and mean, first of all, I always knew that my boss was supportive, but I knew that even more after the fact. I learned that it's okay to make mistakes. Obviously, you know, we hope they are not ones that harm our clients, but mistakes will happen. We are human. Sometimes there are things we can do to remedy them. And so going through all of that and talking about what options the client might have to fix the problem and being honest and forthright as soon as possible when you realize you've made a mistake is definitely something that I learned because not only... Does it give the best chances of you fixing it, if there's a way to fix it? But it also ended up being very comforting to have had that conversation and to have a game plan of what we were going to do and know where we were going to go. And so while I was very nervous to have that conversation, when mistakes have happened since then, I have addressed them immediately because I know that addressing them right away will, in the long run, make me feel much better, much quicker. Yes. The moral to the story is we all drop the ball on occasion and none of us is perfect. We are all human. And in many ways, it's fortunate that it happened to you so early in your career and that you had an amazing boss who helped you to problem solve. So now this yeah. is something you're taking with you and that you will remember and repeat throughout the course of your careers. 
<laughs> whatever they may be, Samantha. <laughs> Final exactly. question. If you could go back to college, back to Georgetown and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think this goes along with a lot of what we've talked about, which is there's not one path to any goal and to any endpoint. And I would tell myself that I think it is great that I was able to be so focused in things like my internship and my out-of-school activities. But within my school activities, and this is advice I'd give myself if I was doing college again and law school again, I would say take more chances, have more fun, try things out that you may have thought to yourself, well, what does that do in regards to what I want to do? Who cares? If it's interesting and it sounds like something you want to know more about, try it out because maybe it'll change what you want to do. And so maybe the answer is it's super important for what you want to do. It's just not the thing you thought you wanted to do. Don't take classes that you feel you should take. You know, we all have their requirements for your major and for your school and things like that. And so, of course, those we have to do. But... The only classes I've ever regretted are classes I took because I thought I should take them, whatever on earth that means. I remember in law school, for example, I thought to myself, I should take corporations. Nothing about that class had anything to do with what I wanted to do, but it, it was always one of those classes people said was part of going to law school. It was a class you should take and you should have it. And so I did, and I hated every moment of it. <laughs> and... You know, I'm sure there are things that I learned and got out of it. But I think back and I think, God, that was a whole class. You don't have a ton of classes. I wish I'd taken something that interested me. I wish I had taken something that seemed maybe not like something you should take, but that it was something I wanted to take. I don't believe in classes or jobs that you should take. Make things you want to take because it's all going to go into shaping what you do going forward. And I, I think that would be the main advice I would give to myself is don't be afraid to try something new. Don't be afraid to take the classes you want to take, meet the professors you want to meet, because it's all important. Every experience I had in college mattered and it all stayed with me in different ways. It all came full circle for me. You know, I did acapella in college and it led me to do acapella in law school. And at a job interview, I met someone who had been in my law school acapella group and that's how we connected. And so, you know, it's all worthwhile experiences and you don't know where you're going to go. And so don't be afraid to try something out. Oh, I love that, Samantha. I love that. And it reminds me the last point that you made about being involved in the acapella group and how that actually helped you out when you went for a job interview. There was another guy who I interviewed who went into finance and he said, your extracurriculars, those things that you took, hopefully, because you were really interested in them, make sure that you are listing all of them 
on your CV because sometimes the connection that you have with somebody who may not have been in the same acapella group, but may have the same interest at another school or in another way can actually open the door to that job. It's uncanny that you just ended on that note because for him, the same thing happened with golf. (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And it's not something they've done. There have been times when I've looked at someone's extracurricular on their resume and I just think it's interesting. And I'll ask them to talk about it at a job interview. And because I'm curious, right? I'm a normal person and this is a human interaction. And so it gives them something to talk about that presumably they are comfortable talking about and enjoy and all of those things. And so, yeah, I completely agree. Well, I want to thank you so much, Samantha, for making time for one of my favorite things to have coffee with me and the time for (laughs) coffee community. And I'm so glad that it's something that you really enjoy as well. And thank you for the incredible service that you are providing the women and now the men who have been in service to this country in the U.S. military. This was just incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. We'll be right back.